So I live here in town. I'm, I'm 34 years old, and I still play ball twice a week at 6 a.m. And um, one of the things that you'll find out about me is that um, I have terrible posture. Uh, so about 10 months ago, I hurt my back playing ball, and uh, stuff nagged me for the course of a few months. And I went to a physical therapist, and I sit there in the room, and she comes in. And the first thing that she says to me is, um, I don't know why your back hurts, but I can tell you it's not going to get any better with posture like that. Your back hurts because you, you tend to look in and look down and you're hunched over that if you would look up and look out that I think that a lot of the things that ailed you would be fixed. And um, I'm up here today because I think that so many of our souls hurt because our souls have bad posture. We look in, we look down and around. And if we would just look up and out, so much stuff would change. So amongst a host of things that, that need to change that we can't get to here, um, there's all of that. We're going to leave that for a time. But what I want to do in our time here um, is just to do what my wife has done for the past 12 years. And uh, just give me a reminder, right? Stand up. Fix your posture. That's all that I hope to do here in God's word as we talk about reconciliation. So if y'all would, as we prepare to approach God's word, would you stand with me as we read from Genesis chapter 45? Genesis 45, I'm going to be in verses 1 through 8. Um, and I'm going to read from probably one of the most puzzling um, and impactful stories of reconciliation that we see in God's word. R read with me. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all of his attendants. So he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the insight that we see. Uh, but more than that, Father, we're grateful for how you work things out in hindsight. And so I pray that you would make us those today that um, work more on our hindsight than our insight, Father. Help us to be reminded of the great and awesome things that you've done and to remember that your past faithfulness, Father, if you don't change, it's really just a future promise, God. Help us to hold on to that and to forgive as we've been freely forgiven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your seats. 
We all want to move past um, our pasts. There's so many of us that have felt these past hurts, and there's this thing that wells up inside of us called hope, and that hope is like Gene Kerr says. Gene Kerr uh, defines hope like this. Hope is this, the feeling that the feeling you have right now isn't permanent. We all want to move past our past. We all want hope. However, um, it's hard to move past our past. Have you ever heard the phrase, time heals all? That's a lie. The passage of time doesn't necessarily mean forward progress. Our past can tend to do two things. They can either hold us back, right? We get stuck in the past. Or our past can pull us back, right? We get sucked back into the past. But here's how our pasts can hold us back. Um, Charles Dickens, in his book, Great Expectations, writes about this one lady named Miss Havisham. She was getting ready to get married. And at 8.40 a.m., she gets the news that her fiancé walked out on her. So do you know what she did? She stopped all of the clocks in her house at 8.40 a.m. She only had one shoe on, so she kept one shoe on. The dress that she had, they describe her rotting mansion 20 years later, and the pristine white dress was yellow. She adopted a daughter and kept her from marrying because of the pain that was done to her. It's a fictional story, and it sounds silly, but it's so descriptive. You know somebody like that. Or maybe you're here and you are somebody like that. Hurt, offended, belittled. And although time moves on, you can't seem to move forward. You may be in here and find yourself nursing grudges. And the more that you nurse those, the more you come to the conclusion um, that when it comes to fairness, unforgiveness is fair. It's saying somebody caused a hurt and a pain and they're responsible to fix it. But what you find out is that nursing a grudge is like scratching the chicken pox. It gives you temporary relief, but it leaves lasting scars. We feel stuck. We know it's unpleasant, but we don't know how to get unstuck. There's some of us here that are stuck in our past. But there's some of us here that get sucked back into our past, right? That we think that we can just say, it's not a big deal. I'm going to ignore it and move on and act like the past hurt didn't take place. But what we find out is, is that pain, pain is like that dog that you don't want, but it has a good nose. Drive as far as you want to from your house and try to drop it off, but by the time you get home, it's going to be waiting on your front doorstep. Here's how you know if you've unsuccessfully tried to move past the pain in your past. Do you ever find yourself with a short fuse for people that haven't done much to you?
Do you find yourself frustrated with men in general for what your father in particular did? Do you find yourself bitter with your kids because of how harshly your parents treated you? Do you find yourself angry in a short fuse? Maybe with ignorant white people because of the arrogant racists that you've come across. It may have been that you've unsuccessfully tried to move past your past by ignoring it, and it sucks you back in. How do we get unstuck? How do we move forward? Here's how we do that. Forgiveness. Concerning failures, yours or some done to you, forgiveness is the only pathway to move forward. And, 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 and that sounds plain and it sounds easy, but you may be here and say, John, I've tried and I just can't. Well, that's why we want to go here to God's word and examine one of the most peculiar and insightful stories of forgiveness that we see and see how it points to one story that's going to give us the power to move forward. So I just want to set a little bit of context and draw you to the life of Joseph. Joseph's upbringing could have gone on in 2018. Joseph was born um, to a dad who had 13 kids by four different women, and they all lived on the same street. He had jealous brothers that wanted to kill him because he was his dad's favorite son sent to check on them. But then one brother named Judah, whose name means to praise, said, instead of killing him, let's make a killing off of him and sell him. And, and as a teenager, in an instant, he lost everything. His mother, his father, his family, his culture, familiar smells, friendship, language, everything. You look back and you think that you've had a bad year or two or three. He had a bad 13 in a row and none of it was his fault. On top of this, he was somebody that was intent on being obedient to God. And every time it seemed like he tried to obey God, he sank further and further into a pit, sold by his brothers into slavery, prosperous as a slave, gets falsely accused of sexual misconducts, gets thrown into jail, prospers in jail, interprets the dream of a guy that gets out and says, when you get out, don't forget about me. And the guy forgets about him. But although he was forgotten about by somebody that had the power to speak for his liberation, God didn't forget about him. And now we see him in a position of power. Get verse three. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? Look, but they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. You've been there. You've been at a place where people have done you wrong and now you have the power
And notice what he does in these next words. He says these words that I feared when my mom and dad told it to me, and now my daughter feels, fears when I say it to her, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come here. Come here. Come here. But listen. His words weren't an intimidation tactic. They were an invitation to relationship as somebody that has moved past his past towards forgiveness. And you ask, how? How did he do it? I think as you look at this text, he remembers two things. If you're ever going to move past your past from frustration to forgiveness, you must Remember two things. You have to remember God's part in your story and your place in his. You have to remember God's part in your story and your place in his. Read verse five through eight with me, and it says this. Look, and now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Look at what Joseph is doing. He's rehearsing a very real past offense with words like, you sold me. I am here. I am a slave because of what you've done. And I really want to start here because there's no virtue in ignoring the past and acting like bad things didn't happen. What he does not do is minimize his pain, say it's, it's okay, it's no big deal because of how things turn out. He said, no, 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 listen, you sold me. When the Bible talks about offenses or injustice, in Genesis 4, when it talks about the murder of Cain and Abel four, uh, five times in four verses, it refers to Cain as his brother. Why? Up until that point, the Bible introduces us to four humans. We know they're related, but it brings it up because it's saying, no, 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 listen, this is a big deal that a brother would kill a brother. That's why I so appreciate Jamar's book, because what it says is, no, 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 racism is a big thing, yes, but it's a big deal that the church was so complicit. It stinks. But here's what he does. He doesn't subtract what took place. He doesn't substitute what took place. What he does is he inserts, he adds God in. Think of watching a movie. And when DVDs came out, they had these things called the director's cut. What it was is I'm going to play the movie as it is, but I'm going to make sure to insert the intent of the person who wrote the story. So three times he's going to say, God sent me, God sent me, God sent me. 
And what we see is somebody that hasn't gotten stuck, but as a result of rehearsing the offense, look at what he does. He rehearses it, and once he adds what God has done, he actually does it, verse 5. The product of it is that he seeks to relieve the offender. And now, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here. What's so amazing about this is you have somebody that has been oppressed, has overcome and come to power, and has not himself become an oppressor. Because he remembers God's part in his story. Life's events have all been sifted through God's hands. God is sovereign. He sits in the heavens. He does what he pleases. And what this means is that God is in complete control of all the events of human history. And although he's not the author of evil, hear this, God authorizes it at times for his glory. Yeah, it's like judo, right? Yeah, I'm not a fighter. I haven't been in a fight since the sixth grade, uh, but I'm a reader, and so I know how to take things that I read and make them apply. Here's what you do in judo. If somebody comes at you full steam and throws all of their weight into to you, you don't neutralize them by stopping them. You allow them. And as they come, you get out of the way and take their harm, arm and use their force to put them on the ground. What do you think God did in allowing Satan to kill his son? He allowed this evil in order to bring about this greatest good. This is what God is doing. And I know it's hard, right? This is a hard truth especially for those of us that have been through real traumatic events that it's hard for us to think about how God would let this take place. And I just want to sit here and say this. Look, that is what we call a hard truth. We live in a world that wants for us to think that if something is hard to grasp, then it can't be true. Or if it's true, then it shouldn't be hard to grasp. And that's just false. There's a thing called a hard truth. And the hard truth is that God will allow evil for his purposes. And I know it's hard to wrestle with, but the truth is actually comforting when you think about the alternative. And here's what I mean. Either somebody is in complete control of the way things went on, or no one is. And if no one is, that's a more hopeless reality than the former. Because if nobody is in control, the only thing that can be guaranteed is that there is absolutely no purpose for the very real pain that you go through. This is why we love like binging on Netflix shows, right? You start off, the first episode comes on, you see all this pain. And what you say is, I know I have stuff to do, but I'm going to spend the next 10 hours on my couch getting to the end of the first season. Why? Because I know that this pain is not all that there is. It's headed somewhere, and I want to see that at the end. This is what God, God does, and I just want you to hear this. Listen, 
your oppressors or offenders, however vile they may be, are not the ones that are writing your story. God is. We take comfort in the fact that the person that has the pen doesn't hate me, but he loves me. He loves me deeply, even when it doesn't make sense to me. It's not senseless. It just doesn't make sense to me right now. Your story, however bad, is being written by somebody that's very, very good. You have to remember God's part in your story. And the way that we do that is you and I have to rewrite the past as if God is actually involved. Don't edit him out. Don't you dare try to interpret history or the things that have gone on in your life without him. You have to insert him in. Family Matters back in the day. You remember that show? All right. Carl and Harriet Winslow, when the show first started, they had three kids. Laura, Eddie, and who? Judy. And then four years in, Judy just vanished. Yeah, yeah, listen to what, what uh, one website says about Judy. It's going to be on the screen. When the series began, Judy was nine years old. In the series' fourth season, her character simply disappeared at the age of 13, with no explanation as to why. As the show started revolving more and more around Steve Urkel, the producers of the show thought that Judy was unneeded and she was more of a background character who was given very few lines. After she disappeared in the episode, Mama's Wedding, the cast of the show, listen, acted as if she never existed. And Harriet and Carl acted as if they only had two kids, Eddie and Laura. This last line's funny because it makes it seem like she was a real person. Judy was last seen walking up the stairs at home. So it's funny to watch that show and in the fifth season, to hear them talk about things that went on in, in the first four, things that Judy was involved in and around for, and they just act like she wasn't there. I bring that up to say, um, if somebody heard you talk about your trauma and frustration and your hurt, when would they say the last time that God was seen? Was it in 2012 when Trayvon Martin was murdered? Was God last seen in November of 2016 in the last election? 2018, 2019, as you are describing the main characters at play in your hurt, when was the last time God was seen. Church, you've got to tell your story as if God and not your offenders or oppressors are the ones that are writing it. You give too much credit to the devil and people that have been devilish to you if you do otherwise. If we're ever going to move past our past from frustration to forgiveness, we have to remember God's part in our story. But it doesn't just stop there. We have to remember your place in his. I want to read verse 5 through 8. 
and highlight a couple of other key words. It says this, and now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Did you catch that God sent me to preserve life, to establish you as a remnant within the land, to keep you alive? father to Pharaoh and ruler of his entire household. He's talking about his advancements. He's talking about his achievements and his promotions. But this is more than just some trite, your pain, your step down is for a step up one day. God's going to promote you. What it's saying is, no, 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 no. Whatever promotion that he got, he doesn't see it as an end in itself. It's not a reward for his faithfulness. It's not the finish line for him. It's just the starting point to what God's really trying to do, accomplish his purposes. We have to remember God's writing our story, but we have to remember that the story that God is writing of which we are involved is not about us. We're a part of his story. Joseph knew that he's a supporting character. And a supporting character doesn't mean unimportant. It doesn't mean not cared about. It doesn't mean insignificant. It just means not at the center. Peripheral. We look at the Bible and we are reminded that the Bible is very much a book for us, but the Bible is not a book about you. The Bible is more like a window something that we look out and through than a mirror that we look to and see ourselves. The Bible is about giving us a picture of God and primarily what God is doing in time and in this world to save and unite a people for himself. So God presents and creates this good plan. Adam and Eve decide to trust their own wisdom instead of God's wisdom and the little snowball of their sin avalanches into the world of chaos that you and I see before us today. And here in this story, what takes place is God had already promised that he was going to save the world through the seed of a woman that's a part of this family. And now this family is in danger of extinction because of famine that's in the land. Famine that comes as a result of the sin that were, was committed by our first parents. But I'm sure as Joseph's brothers thought back about the wrongs that they've done and they thought about this famine that was getting ready to wipe them out, there was something inside of them that said, we didn't cause this famine, but for all the wrong we've done, we sure deserve it. And Joseph says the purpose in his pain was not for his advancement, but to carry on the will of the Father by reconciling people that should have been enemies and preserving their life. When you know that you're a supporting character in God's story, do you know what you do? You start to play your role. 
Larry David, uh, the creator of Seinfeld, uh, created this show called Curb Your Enthusiasm. And one of the unique things about this show was that he didn't write a full script. So if you were acting in this show, you did not have a full script of what went on in the show. All you had was an outline of your scene. So when you stepped into your scene, you had no clue what went on in the rest of the show. So as these actors are on the screen and they're getting news about what goes on, the look of surprise and shock that they have on their face is actual surprise and shock because they don't know anything. Their only job is be faithful in your scene. You don't know the whole story. You don't know how it's going to work out. Your job is to be faithful with the script that you have right there. There is a bigger picture beyond what you can see. You only need to be faithful and remember, uh, you're not Larry David. You're not the main character. You're a supporting character. And if we know this is true and think of God as trustworthy, then we can trust the author. And one of the main ways that we show that we really trust that God is the author is that you and I rehearse God's goodness more than others' offenses. We don't erase the offenses. They don't need to be erased or ignored. They need to be talked about. They just don't need to be talked about as much as we talk about God's goodness. We have to rehearse God's goodness. We have to overlay the offenses with the goodness of, of God, and it becomes this, this trail of breadcrumbs for faith-starved souls. It becomes this steady stream of faithfulness that's going to help us be able to endure the future pain that we feel. Like I said, I'm 34 years old. I still play ball twice a week at 6 a.m. And what I do at 5.30 a.m. before I get on my way to the gym is I take two ibuprofen. Because <laughs> I know I can stretch all I want, I can ice all I want, I can try to take things easy. But I've got to get something in my bloodstream because I know my body's going to take a beating as soon as I step out of the door of my house. As soon as you step out of the doors of your house into the country, that we, the cities that we live in, your body is going to take a beating. You have to rehearse the faithfulness of God more than the offenses of others. And Joseph knows this truth, I think, because of hindsight. He's, he's seen it all work out for him. God's plans often make the most sense in hindsight. We spend a lot of time trying to work on insight and predicting what's going to go on in the future when instead we should be training ourselves in hindsight. I had a professor in school that would say it like this. What God has done in the past is both a plan and a model for what he will continue to do in the future, although he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. You may sit here and hear that and say, John, that's a nice story. I'm glad you drew our attention to 
all of this, but what if it doesn't work out? What if my story's not like Joseph's? What if in my lifetime, God doesn't raise me up like he did then? What if I don't get a chance to get the gift of hindsight like he has? You have to remind yourself that you are a supporting character. The story's not about you. Let me take out Joseph's story a little bit more and show you how this works out. Joseph saves them. He preserves God's line. He forgives his brothers. He brings them in. Things are good. And then Exodus 1 takes place. And what we find out is that God's work is going to outlive God's workers. Joseph dies. A king is raised up who said, Joseph, he may as well be Judy and family matters. I don't know no Joseph. And do you know what he he does? He enslaves the people of God that God had preserved. And do you know what God does? God delivers Israel from this great slavery without them lifting a finger. And it becomes the central event that they're called back to throughout the whole Old Testament. The deliverance that took place out of Egypt and they praise God and they thank God for it. And Moses leads them out. Joshua helps them conquer and they take a hold of the land. These people that have been oppressed are freed and now they possess this land and Joshua dies. And you don't get through the first two chapters of Judges without finding Israel enslaves people. It took God an instant to take Israel out of Egypt. But what we're going to find is generations later, he hasn't gotten Egypt out of Israel. It is a miracle to give people that are oppressed power and to say, I don't want you to use this power to just enact fairness. Unforgiveness is fair. So we see this group of folks that, oh, they've been saved. There's not an enemy in the atmosphere, like Kevin said last night. It's, it's inside. When we remember that this story is not about us, then we come to texts like this and don't say, try hard like Joseph to forgive. We remember who this story is about. Jesus. So do you know what takes place? God looks down and says, I've got a son, a son that I love. Jesus, I want you to go and check on your brothers. Jesus comes down to earth to check on his brothers. And do you know what takes place? Jesus has this one brother, Judas whose name means the same thing as Judah to praise. 
And what he says is, I think there's something actually more valuable than his life. Let's sell him. Judas sells his brother. Jesus goes to the cross. Joseph had the gift of hindsight. He could tell his brothers, look, look, y'all, things worked out. God sent me here to save y'all. I'm in a position of power. I forgive y'all. Jesus actively on the cross dying does not have the gift of hindsight in the moment, in the present. Do you know what he does? He prays that God would forgive his brothers. And what you and I, as we see, listen, and I want you to hear this. An apology is not a prerequisite to forgiveness. There's a lot after forgiveness that has to take place for reconciliation. There's a lot of other stuff that makes our souls hurt. I'm just trying to talk about posture right now. First step. And what Jesus does is he prays that God would forgive people that are both arrogant and ignorant. The oppressors and the oppressed alike. And let me tell you, forgiveness is unfair. It is unfair. It is saying there is somebody that did a real wrong and a real hurt. And the innocent party that felt that hurt is going to be the one to bear it and not charge it to the account of the person that did that wrong. It's unfair. It is unfair. It's unfair. It hurt. It hurt. It hurt. But listen, unforgiveness, nursing a grudge, is a relief that brings lasting hurt. Forgiveness is a hurt that brings lasting relief. This is what our Savior did for us. This is what the whole Bible points to. Thabiti asked me to preach on reconciliation and said I could choose any text that I wanted to, and it was so tough because every text in the Bible leads right here. It's Christ's life, death, and resurrection that has happened to put you in the proper supporting role of this story. Forgiveness, friends, is the only pathway to move forward. It's been richly provided to us so that you and I have the enjoyment of it and have the framework. So here's what I want to leave you with. Forgiveness, um, it, it's hard work. It's not as simple as saying, I forgive you, it's all good. It may require real counseling, processing, community, friends, honest conversations 
work. Like, it takes hard work. It's hard work. But it's, it's hopeful work. And so all that I want to do is make sure that at least we have the right posture headed into the hopeful work. Because if we don't, we're going to leave that hard work Shelved. But if we do have the right posture, we can remember God's part in our story and our place in his and remember Jesus. I think it gives us the right posture. You may say at the end, John, you didn't talk much about forgiveness. I have people that I need to forgive and I just can't. Help me with these next steps. And I just want you to know that forgiveness um, is a byproduct of these li- or of a life lived with both of these truths in mind. It comes naturally, not forcefully. Unforgiveness starts to be foreign when we rehearse God's goodness more than others' offenses because we quit unsuccessfully telling ourselves, try not to be mad instead of saying, be grateful. Be grateful that the person that's writing your story doesn't hate you. And at the end of it all, you're going to look back and say, I never would have thought to do it that way. But now that I see how you did it, I would have done it that way if I had the power to do it. But I didn't. So right now, I'm just going to trust that you're going to be the one to do it. Joseph's brothers didn't get fairness. They got money. They got a pesky brother out of their hair. And then when they were in trouble, they got bailed out. Hasn't that been the same for us? We have not gotten what we deserved. And more than that, through Christ's substitutionary death for us, we have gotten everything that we don't deserve. Do you know why? Because we aren't the ones writing the story. We would have never thought to write it that way. Joseph's oppressors couldn't even successfully self-sabotage their destiny. Isn't that good news for those of us who find ourselves in the same boat? I want to encourage you, don't wait until the end of the story to edit it. You can do so right now. I want to leave you the words with Dr. King. that I feel like is so powerful if I can get to it on my iPad. He says it like this, and it's on the slide. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead 
and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. There are two ways. There are two ways to destroy enemies. One is to eradicate them. The other is to turn them into friends. Our God has turned us into friends. Yes. And we have the same, not just privilege and opportunity, but because of the spirit of God inside of us, yes. we have the same power to do so. I just want to remind you, fix your posture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are grateful that we can be made glad in your word, Father. We ask that you would make us those that are glad. Father, would you remind us that the state of our soul doesn't have to match the state of our surrounding? Even though the world around us is going to hell, we can be reminded that we have been raised up from that same fate by being identified with you. Oh, God, give us grace to remember. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.